Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello, my name is M. Welcome to Thorn in Your Side. I can say in ultimate confidence that it is a weekly podcast because I've kept up my side of the bargain for the last two months. Let's see if I can keep going and hold up to my side of the bargain. Also, feel free to click a like on my Thorn in Your Side Facebook page. You can even remind me of what the name of my podcast is as I struggle to keep reciting it. Anyway, click on the like, please. Now, this is going to be a very special American edition of Thorn in Your Side. I want to analyze Trumpageddon. Now, I had the option of doing this a couple of weeks ago during the actual election, but I wanted to factor in the possibility that if Trump lost, then he would have a petulant tantrum and things would draw out, or... It could have been a potential right-wing insurrection. Either or, I just wanted to see how it was going to play out. So I feel like all things considered, I've definitely played it wisely and think I'm now finally positioned to really have a proper discussion over where things are at with the US. Speaking of the US and speaking about Americans, I have uh, a fellow called Jason here to interview. Jason is a teacher on the east coast of America. He's written for Jacobean. He definitely has a very good lefty voice. He writes good things. We've been good Facebook friends for a few years now, but he's just stepped in at the breach to interview today. So I'm very appreciative for him to do this. But uh, at the same time, I think he's very eager to to get a few things off his chest anyway. Welcome, Jason. Hello. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So at the moment in Australia, it is uh, just after 11 o'clock in the morning. It's in the mid-40s Celsius. You were saying earlier you're familiar with the Celsius program, uh, but either way, it's pretty fucking hot, eh? (laughs) Yeah, it sounds wretched. I'm a child of the 80s in America, so when I hear 40 degrees Celsius... In Australia, I think of the song by Midnight Oil, um, Beds Are Burning. Um, so <laughs> that immediately popped in my head. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know Celsius. Actually, interestingly enough, the singer that you've just mentioned there with Midnight Oil, Peter Garrett, um, he had his time in Australian politics for a little while. Um, he's always been a bit of an environmental activist, but um, I think he um, I think he tried his more moderate version of a Bernie Sanders for a little while there. <laughs> Didn't quite take and these days he's doing the um, the Walker Frame rock tour. So he's gone back to rocking roots uh, with Midnight Oil. So good luck to him. I don't know. I guess you I guess you got to try everything once these days, don't you? Yeah. Well, if you're a boomer rock star, I mean, you got to retire. So you got to have a retirement account somehow. That's the way to do it. People still show up. 
doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. No, I think in Australia what happens these days, or oh, at the moment we're not necessarily having the rock concerts because of our, our lovely pandemic. Which is still raging here, unfortunately. Yeah, so the American experience with the pandemic, like if there is any pandemic controls, uh, I mean, you can clarify this for me, Jason. If there's been any pandemic controls that um, any Americans have uh, enacted, it's it's pretty much been down to, it sounds like, to personal choice um, rather than any direction or intervention by state or government. Would that be fair to say? It depends where you are, but a, a friend of mine described it as a libertarianism run amok, basically. <laughs> um, like th there are no national guidelines, like states and localities have their own, but um, they're really not enforced. So for instance, um, here in New Jersey, where I live, there's a law, a rule that says if I would, if I were to leave the state uh, over the holiday, when I came back, I was, I'm supposed to quarantine myself for two weeks. No one's actually keeping tabs on that okay right? so so it is it is kind of this like free-for-all like at the school where i teach they tell people well if you go away you should quarantine or get tested but how do i know people are doing that so um it's yeah it's it's really um kind of shocking that it's nine months into this and we still haven't um we don't have a coordinated national response in any kind of way so a lot of it seems to be based on goodwill and trust that people are told to do that, but it's really up to them to do it. And if they do it, it's out of their own good faith. Is that, is that been the experience? For travel restrictions, yes. Like other things like, like different states, like in New Jersey, there's pretty strict limits on the number of people who can use restaurants, for instance, like, like a 25% capacity. You can't have an indoor gathering with more than 10 people. You know, um, outdoor gatherings, I think, are limited to 50 people. I don't remember all the rules because I've just been not going to restaurants and not going to gatherings oh. indoors. But, yeah, this state has those kind of restrictions. Other states barely barely have them. Um, many states actually don't have mask mandates in them, including states where the um, infection rates are skyrocketing. Um, but it's sort of, again, there's this, like, a really weird American notion of, um, of sort of self-reliance. So this idea of like the government just can't tell me what to do in this. And um, individuals are smart enough to know for by themselves what mm -hmm. needs to be done. So how dare you <laughs> tell me to put this piece of cloth over my face, mm. right? Mm. Um, it's really toxic. I'm at least glad I live in a corner of the country where it's being taken pretty seriously and people for the most part wear masks in public and, and, and avoid you know, spreader events and stuff like that. So remind me whereabouts uh, on, you're on the East Coast, Jason? Yes? Yeah. New yeah. York, New Jersey? I'm in New Jersey, yeah, and I work in New York City, so I'm a 35-minute a train ride from the town I live in to uh, Manhattan. Okay, hopping over from Gotham City to Metropolis then, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah basically, <laughs> yeah. And I live in, in one of the sort of like... Um, I guess you could call them inner ring suburbs, which was a crucial pickup point for Biden in this election. Yeah. And um, pandemic wise, I would say that was a real, ep that, that has been or continues to be a, a real epicenter of pandemic. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Contagion? Death, destruction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, yeah. New York and New Jersey in the first wave back in March and April, we were hit the worst by far. 
um, you know, uh, and and that's really mattered, <clears throat> I think. But it was also incredibly shocking and disheartening to see while we were dealing with this that the president of the country simply wasn't doing anything to help us. Mm. Um, there was no effort made to get a testing program set up. He would cajole the governors of New York and New Jersey for not being obsequious enough to him. Um, the governor of New Jersey actually ended up saying some nice stuff about Trump online, basically as a way to like grease his palms a bit to get some more stuff. And after that happened, we got a bunch of like um, machines sent to uh, the hospitals. To, to I just blank on the name of not incubators, but <laughs> I blank on the name of like the, uh, the, a lot of medical equipment got sent after the governor did that, basically. Yeah. So in comparison in Australia, well, I guess to start off with, Jason, did the shit hit the fan for you guys in March? It did for us. In the New York, New Jersey area, for sure, yeah. Okay. And it's, yeah. And it was always spreading before we did anything. <laughs> but they're finding now there was infections all over the place in, like, February that it just wasn't. It was it was misthought of as like the flu or something, and it was it was COVID. Yeah, no, uh, this is how it kind of went down in Australia. It was um, there was a bit of panic in February and March, and that expressed well in February. Uh, that kind of expressed itself with this idea, and um, to use the the Game of Thrones parlance, there was that feeling of winter is coming. Um, something big was about to happen. I think that was expressed in a consumer mode through everyone flogging all the toilet paper. So, um, yeah, in February, um, it was very hard to find your toiletries. Um, so hand wipes, baby wipes, toilet paper, anything, um, to basically resolve your private needs were just not there. And, um, that was a lot of people just hoarding everything, getting ready for, um, for something, don't know. The government wasn't really giving too many answers or too much guidance at the time. And um, I think there was some panic in response to that. And at the time, I think there was a lot of blame on people doing panic buying, like it was some sort of um, failure of adult responsibility. But I think looking back on it, it does it did seem like a, a reaction to a government was just really faffing about. And where things became a bit more on an even keel was when the WHO announced that it was a pandemic and then Australian government, I think, went, oh, shit, this is something going on now. We better participate within the news of the world. So then they started putting measures in and that manifested through a combination of federal and state regulations, uh, introduction of regulations um, so in March, there was a bit of confusion there over what we could and couldn't do, but the message was getting out to the community that there was some stuff that we suddenly weren't allowed to do. It was just a matter of trial and error over what we weren't allowed to do. I mean, at one point I was at the park and um, some cops are just driving past and it's like, hey, constables, can I just sit here and do stuff? And they go, yeah, for now. <laughs> so it was just a bit like that. And with time, I think... There was that a bit more of a community savviness about what you can and can't do. Although, mind you, um, I think you still had your um, societal orgasms when there was public holidays and when it was reasonably warm, people would still flock to the beach. Um, I do recall 
June, there was a Queen's birthday long weekend, which is kind of ironic because it's nowhere close to the Queen of England's birthday, right? But, you know, we'll celebrate it anyway. It's a holiday. We get a three-day weekend, whatever. Make up, whatever. So we had that. And people, it was warm enough to go to the beach. So people went to the beach and then you know, give that week, two weeks incubation period, we were looking at another wave of pandemic cases. So that's that's tended to be the Australian experience. But I think comparing that to the American one, it does sound like there was a bit more of a presence of state and a bit more of a mobilisation between different levels of states. Because if there is something that um, the US and Australia does have in common, it is this um, federalist project Now, I'm going to say this, and I'm not going to try to sound arrogant about it, Jason, but it sounds like in Australia there is there does seem to be a bit more of of good coordination between federal and state levels compared to the US. But in my view, I think a lot of that's been due to being forced to work hard because people were panicking. There were also health experts and health in- health institutions coming out of the tree saying this stuff is serious, there needs to be plans. There's also the, yeah, the international organisations such as the WHO, which Australia has respect for. So all of that melted together to where we've, we've kind of gotten somewhere towards control. I mean, not as good in other countries like New Zealand, where I think the, the state intervention was definitely a lot better. But I guess in relation to, if you want to put things on a bit of a spectrum here, I mean, there's New Zealand that um, that kind of shows the, the social democratic ideal in terms of pandemic response. And here's Australia where it's like, okay, well, we'll react to stuff and we'll respond to stuff because people are panicking. So, you know, it's the, it's the fair go thing. And then there's America where there just seems to be, um, as you are saying, Jason, that, that cultural idea that um, we can do this. It's up to this real cultural force of the individual to, um, to get through it. I mean, my interest in all of this is working out how the, how the economy still exists with all of that and how people tend to survive through the economic well-being of it all. But to me, it what seems to have played out here is this real nexus between cultural ideals within a nation and um, what a state does in that and and also how a state jumps in when the status quo hasn't really worked because that's what Australia was doing for a while there. It was a case of let's just keep trying to do business as usual. Um, the economy will sort everything out, but then... By about March, April, it was becoming immediately apparent that the state really needs to suddenly become a lot bigger very, very quickly. So anyway, that was uh, that was my hot take in 10 minutes or less. Over to you. <laughs> I just find that very, I like you mentioned the social democratic example in New Zealand, because that's sort of what American conservatives are frightened of. They, they don't want the government to act because if it does so successfully, it undermines their entire ideology. Um, that's why they want they they're frightened to death of something like single payer healthcare, for instance, <laughs> because once people realize, oh, I can get better healthcare while paying less money, and not being ripped off by insurance companies, like it's their their whole ideology will fall apart. So like they're they're really I think outsiders to America sometimes don't see this that like the Republican Party is just dead set on not allowing the state to succeed because 
it undermines their entire reason for existing. Whereas it seems in Australia, like I doubt that the Liberal Party is that invested in, in like attacking the very idea of government, right? They seem a little more sane. As an outsider, I don't know enough about them to really understand. So. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe it's a grass is always greener situation. Yeah, it, it the the controlling government for Australia and for New South Wales, so the state I reside in, they're both presided over by the Liberal government, uppercase L. But from what you're explaining there, Jason, I would say that perhaps there is a old fashioned lowercase L <laughs> that's still operating where there is still that trust and confidence in a government order um, to provide some kind of response to things. Compared to America, I don't think there's that idea that if there was, if that was to happen, it would be undermining any agenda that party people would have. So there isn't that Republican push um, that's seen in America so much. But I will go back to my point, though, that I think a lot of the response that has happened here is has been, a, a, in many ways, a reluctant response to the panic and a lot of coordination as well. So um, with within the union movement uh, in Australia, uh, there was suddenly um, a lot of labour-based coordination regarding trying to get special leave in the case of COVID infections. So if you need to do the enforced quarantine, you need to take two weeks off. Also, a lot of advocacy for what safe work practices uh, during pandemic times. So making sure that all the protocols uh, and work health and safety processes are in place within the workplace. And that's something where um, the union has been in a position to advocate for. So compared to America, there's a healthy uh, labor tradition that's kind of kept government honest as well. But I'm trying my best here to sort of articulate that there was possibly a class demand that was created here in light of the pandemic and said, well, look, this is something that's unique. This is something that's going to impact upon us. This is a threat. This is what we need. And there was a reluctant response there within Australian terms, um, a conservative set of governments, both at federal level and at state level in my neck of the woods. As I've mentioned in, in previous podcasts, different states have definitely had their own different stories um, as to how they've, they've had the experience of the pandemic. But in, through my own perspective, federal and state, relative to other states within Australia, it, it's been a bit more of a conservative experience. But at the same time, that government interventionist response, which in stark contrast to the last 30 or 40 years, is quite a different approach where the economy comes first and the economy will prevail. But in the last, yeah, since last March, there has definitely been a clear state presence. And we've kind of suddenly become accustomed to that. Although, pissing off to the beach every so often um, as a ways of, of trying to let off steam, that's still happening. So, you know, there's, there's those contradictions too. Yeah, but you were talking about federalism before. Like, I think the big difference is that in the American case, like the, the whole system of federalism has basically been used to prevent important social change from the beginning, um, you know, to protect slavery, right, initially, and later on, the, the idea of states' rights was used to support 
um, you know, segregation mm. and fight against like federally enforced civil rights. I get the feeling that in Australia, it might be more functional. The federalism might be just a little more functional because it's actually not necessarily created to to just destroy progress, <laughs> which if you look at the American system, we have a lot of choke points against democracy and, and federalism is definitely one of them. Yeah, I think I know that you ha- you definitely have a, a huge uh, knowledge of, of U.S. history, Jason. I think you've definitely got a personal stake in it as well as a professional one. So you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong here. But I think a lot of what predicated the U.S. Federalist Project was the idea of property and land ownership. So you came up with regulations and structures to ensure that, um, and particularly in the interests of conquest of land, and it's all mystified in this legal constitutional rational framework. That would seem to me be the, the whole underpinning of, of what set off US federalism. Would that be true to say, or... Is this something I've just asked that's going to require another three or four podcasts to, to figure out? Well, it's what's weird is that at the Constitutional Convention, the people who were most responsible for, for crafting it assumed that federalism was going to die out. Um, oh, so this was like a flash in the pan type thing. That was the sentiment. Well, like this, the United States had an original constitution called the Articles of Confederation that was a, a total disaster where like every former colony, which was now a state, like had an equal vote and and like one person represented the state and like there was very little federal government. Um, the, you know, the British Empire was already like smacking his lips to like basically move in and, 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 and get its colonies back. Um, hmm. That prompted the writing of the constitution, which was meant to get more federal power and people like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton they kind of assumed like, oh, after a while, the state governments are so unwieldy and unnecessary that they'll disappear, right? Which is which is not what happened. But it's definitely, it's it set up, this, the, the, um, I have reasons to dislike Alexander Hamilton, who is not the person who's portrayed in the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical. Yeah, and that's what the Obama administration has to answer to, I'd say. Yeah, well, which we, I could talk about that. But I think I think is is like a work of art. It's got a lot. To, it's got a lot going for it. Is is history is just not. You know? Yeah. Um, but uh, but Hamilton did say something in, in like a private letter where he basically talked about, well, you know, the people who want to maintain these state governments are all a bunch of like, you know, local yokels who lack the intelligence and ability to succeed at a national level. So they want to maintain their local power. And he was definitely right about that. But the thing is, that's that's what's motivating a lot of this is that state governments are a place where sort of local big shots can really exercise a lot of power, right? Um, whether it be in terms of protecting their economic, I mean, protecting their economic interest is the big is the big one. Like you mentioned, like the one of the things that's defeated um, unionism in America is federalism. Um, so several states in America have what are called right to work laws, which is a, an Orwellian concept. I don't know if you've heard of these these laws before. No, please explain. Uh, so, all right. So they basically, you know, under FDR and the New Deal in the 30s and 40s, the right to unionize was protected by law. Right. You couldn't fire someone for organizing and all this. And that's all right. um, 
built uh, upon the New Deal, uh, yeah. American uh, application of Keynesian economics, World War II recovery projects, all that sort of stuff, yeah? Yeah, and like the, the number of people in unions skyrockets, like the wages shoot up in non-unionized factories because they want to compete for workers. And then in the late 40s, a Republican Congress um, passes this law called the Taft-Hartley Act, which basically says that um, states can establish what are called right-to-work laws, meaning that a state can say that a closed shop is banned in that state. Like you have several states where unions have a hard time organizing because they can't make everyone on the job pay dues, essentially. And so there are several, and again, like the, the marketing people who supported this called this the right to work, which is just an insidious term. <laughs> and people still use it even on the left to describe what these laws are. And I hate it. I say, don't use that term. <laughs> like, come up with, like come up with another, um, like some people in the labor movement call it like the right to work for less, um, which I've always liked that as a, as a term. Um, so you have like states like Texas where I used to live where like there's very little union membership um, and that like, uh, you know, powerful like lumber interests back in the early 20th century, like just really did everything they could to like quash any level of, of unionism. So mm. in the United States after World War II, all this business moved to the states where labor costs were lower because of the lack of unionization essentially. So like this whole system has, has like made it in the United States where um, there's an incentive for companies to leave states that have strong labor protections and go to states that don't. I know that's a bit off track, but it it, it kind of shows just how insidious this is in, in the American system that we have here that like labor rights are totally inconsistent based on where you're living in the country. It also presents an environment for capital to kind of pick and choose their labor markets, doesn't it? You know, uh, if there's one area of the U.S. where there is a, a relative amount of union organization activity and organized workers, then they can go, okay, well, that's that's too hard. Let's have a look at um, somewhere else where there's a similar industrial center within the U.S., And um, but uh, the labor regulations aren't as advanced. Um, there isn't so much of a, of, of a leverage on, on the part of the workforce there. Let's go over there instead and see how much can be exploited. That seems to be the type of political economic terrain that federalism has been able to provide or produce uh, within the US. And I think that might set the scene for uh, a bit of a conversation here, Jason, on Trumpageddon and the pandemic and where to from here. <laughs> There's a lot there, isn't there? Yeah. But talking a bit about Trump now, I, I would suppose. So correct me if I actually said this during the podcast or we discussed this before the podcast, Jason, okay. but okay. Um, we, uh, I decided to buy myself a bit of time because there was the option of doing a podcast immediately after the election. But um, I decided to stall it a bit, give it a couple of weeks because I was factoring in the possibilities that if Trump did not get the election result that he was after, he would go on a bout of egotistical, belligerent hubris and just refuse everything and try to galvanize his electoral base. Or, and this, this was a genuine fear for me for a little while there, that America could suddenly experience a potential right-wing neo-fascist 
uprising because of the results of that election. That could have been a potential uh, ringing of the bell to the American right that government, if it wasn't working before, it definitely wasn't working now. It's a total failure. Federalism sucks. Let's do an insurrection. For me, that was a potential fear, uh, seeing that from the other side of the world. You also mix in the fact that there was a complete um, government uh, failure to respond to the US pandemic, although you were mentioning earlier, Jason, that it was happening in bibs and bobs, but um, there wasn't that blanket national plan of a pandemic response, which should have happened, but didn't, and people died because of it. So... There's a combination of things there, Jason. So perhaps my immediate question to you is this. Is the US out of the woods in terms of the election or is shit still happening? Is this a guy that still bolted himself within the White House? What's going on there? Maybe that's where we can start. It's sort of surreal. It's like his, I just saw today that some of his flunkies in the state of Pennsylvania were going to try to challenge the election results um, based on, you know, like a bag of magic beans, basically. Like, there's no, like, actual evidence of anything. But it's sort of strange. I think most Americans have just said, well, we know that he lost. And they're just kind of just watching him flail like this which I think has been a, a, bit of, a bit of a problem that people aren't taking it seriously, that he's trying to undermine the democratic process. He just hasn't had any traction, but the fact that he's trying should be a big deal. What you said about like a right-wing uprising, I was also very concerned about that. I think what's happened is that because, because uh, if, if, if folks are in Australia aren't aware of this, like this, the US Senate is still up for grabs. There's two special elections that have runoff elections that have to happen. Um, and in Georgia, which is a southern state, which went for Biden in this election, but it tends to be pretty conservative. Mm. Um, and I think because of that, because conservatives could be like, well, the Democrats aren't going to control all the branches of government. I think that caused them to hold back a bit. What's the result been in the House of Reps? I know we've been it's been drummed into us uh, in Australia, the, the college vote, but not so much the House of Reps won. So how's that going at the moment? Well, the Democrats are going to have the majority, but it's going to be a smaller majority than they had after the last off-year election in, in 2018. And like some of the elections, like the vote, there's like one election where the vote count is like a 13-vote margin, so they're going to have to to redo the vote count. So I basically, the Democrats will at least have a four-seat majority. Um, they might end up having a six-seat majority based on a couple of recounts and so forth. And this has been a big point of contention in the United States because in many districts, there were um, Democrats who had just gotten elected to the House who ran more centrist campaigns who lost, right? And there was this big, because the, the win was not as decisive as a lot of people would have liked. And so there was this one argument that said, oh, um, you scared off the moderate voters by talking about Black Lives Matter and, <laughs> and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And then there was another group of folks who said that, like, well, but look, the people who tried to run away from these issues ended up losing. So when the reality is complex, I think that like a more radical mess, I think that certain parts of the country are more left in their political opinions. They're represented by centrists. And that's where you need to run the more leftist messaging, mm. whereas there are other areas where that might not work as well. So I don't think it works the same everywhere. But that's kind of what's going on in the House. The Democrats will have a, a slim majority in the House. 
there's a chance they will have a, a 50-50 tie in the Senate, which then the vice, again, the American system is completely ridiculous. It's an 18th century relic that's, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, rest of the world that you have to put up with our ridiculous system. <laughs> and you have to like know about this stuff because our idiot decisions affect you. Um, right uh that's 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 our i'm sorry for that um as an american who actually you know i spent some time abroad um i understand how much consternation this gives the rest of the world that's, that's um, all right jason you sound all right yeah well that's the thing though like um i went i went to um not to digress uh i was in germany in 2003 2004 doing my dissertation research and this was right after the iraq war and people would hear i was at they'd, they'd find out i was an american and they'd be like They'd be very mad at George W. Bush. I'd say, I know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm mad at him too. Mm. I'm. What do you think? I'm glad not to be in the country right now because I think my country's gone insane. You know, like I, I need to get out of there. Um, but, but yeah. So if there's a 50-50 tie in the Senate, the Vice President um, basically can cast a tie-breaking vote. So there's a small chance the Democrats will control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Okay. Uh, I don't find it very likely. But there's a, a small answer chance. But I think that a lot of conservatives, once they realized that they weren't going to be losing all the levers of power, were less concerned. I think the fact that Trump jammed in a Supreme Court justice week before the election also assuaged people's fears because the Supreme Court like is is, is dominated by radical conservatives and they could nullify all kinds of legislation. Yeah, I think my understanding, though, the types of cases that were stumped up to the inferior courts underneath the Supreme Court within the US, I think a lot of the cases that were presented uh, by the, the Trump uh, group were actually quite frivolous, but at the same time, it needed to be dressed up in a way where at least the judge was going to hold proceedings over. <laughs> I think there were cases of, um, of evidence being based upon hearsay and and people with a wearing the maga hat just <laughs> making up stuff and it's like okay well trump's going to hear that and it's like that's going to be that's going to make a potential um court matter so let's contribute that as evidence and just then, to quote lionel hutz on the simpsons um hearsay and conjecture are kinds of evidence <laughs> actually there was a youtube there that i was listening to and watching where um they actually explained all of that and they did refer to that particular soundbite from the simpsons in terms of being able to explain it so yeah it's it's very accurate and then yeah also that one where um lionel hutz is removing that tie and uh between yes. mid-speech and it's like in fact i was never wearing a tie at all <laughs> that's the level of lawyering that's going on here that's how it played out within the courts underneath the Supreme Court in terms of uh, trying to work out whether it was election fraud or not. That was the stuff that was being heard and contested and um, it's bullshit um, at its face, frivolous. But at the same time, I think how Trump, I think for me, I'm cynical about this. Like Trump knew this. There was definitely some sort of method there. I think for Trump, it's about trying to, um, to galvanize that circus of support that he has and also providing a bit of a, a dog whistle to the American right. When it comes to four years' time, I would say that he's, he would likely take a second lap of it and go up against the Democrat candidate of the time, who I would imagine is not necessarily going to be Joe Biden even. I have a suspicion that Biden is going to come into office and say, you know what, I'm 78 years old. 
I'm here. It's it's like if you ever worked in a dysfunctional workplace and they bring in someone to like clean it up, mm. <laughs> move along. I think his attitude is going to be I'm a caretaker president. If I'm serving one term, I can just make the decisions I want to do without having to worry about being reelected. Especially that he will do that. Has there been a public handshake agreement between Biden and Harris already, or is this all conjecture? Because within Australia, that's been a bit unclear. We've we've speculated. I mean, that's conjecture. Like anything that, I mean, I think that when he chose his vice presidential candidate, most people who follow politics understood that he was also effectively choosing his his successor, right? Because um, he chose someone who, um, you know, is from a, a solidly democratic state. So he didn't choose her to win that state in the election. He chose someone who was very established politically. I mean, I, I, that's my assumption that, that she would be his preferred candidate in 2024. Mm. But lots of things could happen, right? Like, um, if you would have told me in 2016 that Joe Biden would be elected president in 2020, I would have been shocked. Right. Um, if you told me 10 years ago, you guys would have Trump as your guy in charge. It's like that dude, that's a Simpsons episode. What the fuck? Exactly. <laughs> and that literally did happen on the Simpsons. And like, I think that it's, it's too much to anticipate. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that he might just decide I'm just going to do this. There's a, you could do a lot of debate over how effective that would be. Like incumbent presidents have a huge electoral advantage. Um, it's a, it's kind of a big deal that Trump lost. Actually, it's rare for incumbent presidents to lose. You have to really fuck up really bad uh, for that to happen. So I think I think there's been a little too much mopiness from Democrats in America that they didn't get a bigger win. It's like well, it's kind of a big deal to defeat an incumbent who whose party also is making it harder to vote, <laughs> like for, harder for Democratic voters to vote in different states. Like so, it's it's kind of a big deal, but. To me, this outcome presents uh, a couple of issues for me, and this might be where we can uh, do the home stretch in this episode, Jason. This election to me presents a couple of crisis of political conscience within America. One seems to be within the Democratic Party. Uh, the second one seems to be within the American working class. We can talk about both. I suppose with the Democratic Party, uh, as you were mentioning earlier there, Jason, that idea of how much to the left does the establishment Democratic Party types want to stray to in order to secure the protest votes against Trump, while at the same time still presenting to, I'd say, a fair potential Democratic-friendly electorate that um, these are still a bunch of people that are, are still quite far removed from said, said electorate in terms of how they operate and how they think and how they act and how they um, how they scheme. The second thing there is that with the working class issue, Trump has really stamped his impression upon it because four years ago, uh, I think there was that term that was freely bandied about on why people voted him in. It was based upon a white lash, this resurgence of white american puritanical values where there is that entitlement based upon race and it's all enmeshed within american culture and all that sort of thing but four years on that thesis is not so apparent because you're seeing people voting for trump across a variety of ethnicities cultures 
class strata. I've got some thoughts on what's still happening there, but it's that change, though, in voting behavior across four years that, that tells me that class sentiment, um, class values have changed a little bit. Um, and I think Trump has, has definitely influenced that. So not sure where you want to go with that one, Jason, whether you want to have a go at the first one or the second one or mix a little bit of the first one with the second one or we can talk about The Simpsons yeah. a bit more. So something that I'd like to go off on um, is sometimes the, the way that we think about social class in America is very strange. Um, and that like your prototypical Trump voter um, is often somebody like in a, like when they do polling on class in America, they reduce it to college education, which I think is a real problem. So it's like, oh, if you're college educated, you're middle class. If you're not, you're not like in a cultural sense that might work to an extent. But um, your prototypical Trump voter is someone who has a job that doesn't require a college education, but is sort of a lower middle class type of job. Right. So say they own like a small lawn landscaping company or something like that. And so <laughs> like, yes, I know that just talked true. It's true though. Like a very famous lawn mowing company now, I think yes. in America. <laughs> yes. I have, the, I have the t-shirt to prove it. Now, <laughs> Picture, pictures or it never happened, picture. Jason. <laughs> yeah. And God bless Philadelphia. What an amazing city for securing that. But I, I think though that there's this under, there has to be sort of this understanding of like that that group of people the people who own like a small business like that I mean traditionally they're like the group most susceptible to fascism and that's definitely true in this case the people who feel squeezed between the working class and the middle class right um, and I get what you're saying totally like just to go off on a digression here I live in like an inner suburb of of New York City it's actually fairly diverse in terms of like race and socioeconomics so it's not it's not uniform. But there's a lot of like sort of educated upper middle class folks who live here. And this, uh, you know, this you see people with signs in their lawns and say Black Lives Matter and so forth. Um, but the town I live in went like 85% for Biden or something. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever I talk to people around here about the teachers union, for instance, um, they're very negative and very nasty about it. Like, so the, the Democratic Party has this problem where they have these voters who are very enthusiastic who aren't interested in expanding the, the welfare state. They aren't interested in labor unions. This is gonna be the point you're getting at. So mm -hmm. there are people who, who might abhor Trump. They might be very pro LGBT rights. They might be against systemic racism, but when it comes to any actual redistribution of wealth, they lose their minds, right? I, I'm involved in local movements to get more affordable housing built um, in my community. Okay. Um, and people who call themselves, you know, progressive, who have Black Lives Matter signs their lawn, will will fight that. Even though by fighting affordable housing, they're effectively segregating the town we live in, right? Um, making it harder for folks to move in um, from surrounding communities who are often working class um, Black people, right? Mm. So yeah, that's going to be a huge problem for them. I, I mean, again, I think someone like um, Alexandria Castillo Cortez. I don't know how well she's known in Australia. Uh, uh, we refer to her as AOC. So, um, okay. yeah, she, she has, uh, she has, we have an awareness of her. <laughs> Good. I figured, I just, I just never know. Like, again, Americans are so ignorant of the rest of the world. Um, so, um, and, well, and then, well, I think well, what, you know, I think what particularly appeals is the fact that, um, uh, 
she's her ethnicity is Puerto Rican. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I think what really um, really uh, appeals to us, us lefty types at least, is that she's not part of a, an American uh, political dynasty. She seems to have a very much a first-generation-ness about her in terms of stuff that she's achieved. And she's saying all these issues and she's doing it in a very articulate manner that a lot of Aussie lefties at least uh, are thinking and feeling. It's just that we've never really seen or heard it on such a popular level. And she's young as well. I think there's still like that idea, that connection between youth and inferiority that I think there needs to be some effort to get past because look what's happened here with the the American election. At the end of the day, it was like it was run by two old white men, right? That was the contest. There is just no space there for any alternative. Um, And I suppose that's where definitely the cynicism for me with electoral politics lies because the the options that you have there are so narrow. um, And despite any idea of any progressive inclination, whether it be, you know, Obama or the Hamilton musical... That all seems to be quite pretentious when you see at the end of the day it becomes, again, a two-horse race between two old white men. That's why it's interesting to see someone like AOC suddenly step into the fray because there is something real there, if that makes sense. So, no, exactly. Yeah, and I want to go off on that. And again, just as a small correction, like Puerto Rico, since Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, people who are born there are American citizens. So. Ah. It's not, but but no, but it's okay. You have this misunderstanding because again, even so, she's not a first generation American. However, because of the way the colonial system in Puerto Rico works, people who live there don't get actual representation in Congress. Anyway, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, but it, but I, I I totally agree with what you're saying. As I'm a teacher, so you know, students at my school have engaged in walkouts over gun violence, um, the lack of gun control in the United States. They've they've, they've done student-led walkouts around climate change um, and around police brutality, mm. uh, like during the George Floyd protests. Um, and when I, before the election, I polled them, I said, what are the issues that matter most to you? And the issues they said were basically, um, climate change was like number one. Number two was like the like justice and the criminal justice system. Um, and by far, these were the issues they cared about the most. And yet all I've heard post-election is like, well, those issues, freak out these sort of older centrist voters we need to get. But I think the cynicism you're talking about is really going to take hold. Like there's all these young people who, who are active and they really care. Right. Um, and they feel like they're concerned that you were mentioning it being 40, you know, in the forties down there where you are right now, like mm-hmm. they're really concerned about their future and they're not seeing that reflected and AOC is someone who I think really does reflect that really well. Mm. And, you know, young people voted for Biden by a huge margin, but they don't, in America, they vote in such small numbers, mm. right? So then the parties just keep throwing out establishment figures. And so I don't know what's to be done about that. I mean, I, I'm i a big believer in just trying to do more things locally to generate enthusiasm, right? Like mm. we can, like, this is where the, I want to flip the federalism thing. So New Jersey... We just voted for legalized marijuana, right? Um, we ended cash bail 
in New Jersey, uh, where people have to post money to be let out of jail while they're on while they're being put on trial. Okay. It's probably a thing that doesn't exist in Australia. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, it's like there needs to be things done to capture that real concern and enthusiasm. Hmm. And I'm just not seeing it. And my generation is such that, like, we're that's kind of what happened. A lot of people I knew cared about these things. They didn't see it reflected in the '90s under the whole you know neoliberal onslaught, <laughs> and they just gave up. And they said, you know. Who wants to be involved in politics you know it doesn't offer anything for me so that that's the real that's the real problem i see coming up is a lot of people who are very much wanting to engage and care a lot but they're just going to be ignored and that this is just going to perpetuate itself uh, i'm hoping that's one thing i can talk more in future episodes is that idea that i think privilege can be very much intertwined with detachment from economic issues and have that privilege to have the space and agency to make the separation between putting one's energy towards social movement issues or trying to progress one's movement within the political structures and institutions. So... You know, if one can um, become a store within the Democratic Party whilst also presenting themselves as a, as a progressive voice. There is also uh, that idea of, of, and I mean, this is a real hot take for me, but this idea of cognitive, uh, some sort of dissonance where, and I think this is where a lot of um, Trump voters kind of experience this, where they just detach themselves from the reality of low-paid work competing with other ethnicities, people within other suburbs, that basic competition for jobs, all that sort of stuff. All that can be detached from because Trump presents this very enticing fantasy that people can buy into with their vote. There's this stuff. These three things that seem to be at play that present challenges at a progressive level, and I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it can be talked about as, as much as it could, but it's not to say that um, it's not new. I mean, a pipe dream for me one day is to interview... Um, do you know a woman called Kimberly Crenshaw? Of course, yes. Yeah, uh, the lady that, that coined intersectionality... Um, See, in an idealistic world, it's like she would be a bigger thinker as Chomsky, right? But it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. I'd like to interview her one day. That is my pipe dream. And for that, the stuff that I've just mentioned over the last three minutes, I feel would be quite a normal conversation. It would feel like a normal conversation. But right now it's not. It just feels like, well, I'm fumbling around. I'm trying to conceptualize stuff that I feel has some resonance and some ability to analyze and identify and make sense of what's going on but uh, yeah just not quite there yet i'd just like to try to find more opportunities to kind of um kind of banter about that stuff i think in future podcasts and um and also any opportunities to do political action around it i'd love to do that as well because yeah if this last year has been anything to go by it's been putting the the traditional forms of political action in stasis too that's why the George Floyd protests were such a miracle and like 
in because all I kept thinking back in April, you know, was the sense of like, well, can we have like mass movements under this? Like, is this government which is just letting people die? Is it just going to be allowed to do that? And then there was this mass uprising, basically. Mm. People say we've had enough. I mean, like, there were crowds marching on the White House. I don't know if you saw any of the footage of that. No, like, definitely saw all oh, that. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, that was, that's the closest I've seen to like an 1848 situation in America. <laughs> America. Like, there were crowds of people like marching on the White House that had been beaten back. But the problem is, though, it's like the, the right were doing, uh, are doing exactly the same thing, but for different issues. Well, no. Yeah. Like, taking over like um, state capitol buildings, um, but then like armed with guns and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, there, there were some weeks there where things really seemed, you know, the, the statues being toppled, like, I don't know, like, I felt the earth move under my feet a little bit, you know, like, mm. oh, I'm like, oh, the tectonic plates of history are shifting. Mm. But mm. it seems like now the, those days are almost forgotten in a weird way. Um, and I don't know what to make of that. But well, I don't know it, if that can be repeated. Yeah, I mean, for me, and I think this has been a theme that's been in a few podcast episodes now, is examining this horse and cart, chicken and egg type argument where is the pandemic responsible for all the this sudden political activity within the US or would it have happened anyway because this stuff has happened because of a festering of issues that um, they can go as far back as Columbus doing his, his fucked up thing. That's, yeah, it, it, that's been a bit of a theme that's, that's come across through the, the those podcast episodes. Um, and I'd, I'd definitely be happy to, to kind of explore all that stuff further. It is interesting stuff to think about, but I know one thing, uh, with this pandemic is that it's I don't think it's going to end like flicking off a switch. I think there will be stuff that will still continue once the pandemic recedes or meanders or basically just holds a very faint beat in the social background. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like something like the Black Lives Matter movement that will continue in some shape or form. That's worth really considering what that means. Um, yeah, lots of change, basically. Um, and I think that's one main reason why we're having these podcast episodes, at the very least. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I think that there's so much room for another asteroid to hit, you know, so to speak, like <laughs> like another another unexpected thing to just to come crashing in at this point. Like I was saying at the start of this episode, Jason, in Australia, our asteroid could be a very flaming one hitting our scrub. Oh, and it'd be terrible, yeah. For another round of the, the bushfire stuff. But, you know, we'll see. But I think that's probably something else that we'll have to get our head around, that um, rolling crisis. I mean, this is what the Australian experience has been in the last year or so, this idea of rolling crisis. And for me, I don't see it as something as disconnected from capitalism and economic flows and capital flows. There is a connection there. And I think the challenge is, is to work out the connection. But uh, I think I'll wait for, for future podcasts to have a go at that, Jason, or perhaps someday we can, um, we can meet and uh, go in the barricades, as it were. Well, that's a great, uh, that's a great framing. I mean, the people who are always touting capitalism, are, they say the word disruption like it's a good thing. 
Yeah. Which I've always found to be perverse. Like, well, I'm disrupting this, I'm disrupting that. It's like, like what's the good in that? <laughs> it's a very objective concept now because you see, I think with the, the, the protests as well, like um, before that was something that was very much in the, the domain of, of leftist activity. Um, these days, both sides of the political spectrum have ownership over that now. I think from there it's about um, what where there's actually the most political substance that's apparent. I would hope, um, at the moment it's hope, that it's still, that is something that's within the domain of, of, of leftism. I think that might be a good time to hold that thought, Jason. I feel like I can talk forever on, on this sort of stuff. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope I, I haven't been shooting my mouth off too much. No, nah, it's, it's been awesome. And um, I also feel like um, there's also this undercurrent of pop culture interest there as well. I'd like to pick your brain on that sometime too. I get the yeah, feeling be, we could... Wonderful. I get the feeling we could basically do a whole episode where we could have a political riff and have Simpsons quotes that basically back up everything that we're talking about. I reckon we could pull that off. <laughs> Yeah, I like the, the Lionel Hutz thing translated. <laughs> All right. Well, just remember that you wear a belt and a tie next time, Jason, and we'll go from there. <laughs> All right. Well, nice talking to you, Jason. Let's keep in touch and stay right. safe. Yeah, you too. See ya.